and welcome to Monsieur So British podcast, written and read by me, Ian Moore. I'm a best-selling author and stand-up comic. I live in the Loire Valley in France with my family and assorted livestock and pets and so on, and where I also run a B&B. This podcast takes in all those different spinning plates as I try and keep them spinning, health aches and pains as well, travel chaos, puppies, children, comedy, and sometimes flushing out a sewage system because B&B guests will insist on flushing things like children's toys down the toilet. This episode is about a long-planned New Year's trip, a trip to New York even. I hope you enjoy it. So here goes, Monsieur So British, episode 12, King of the Hill, Top of the Heap. It started off as a fit of peak. It's a skill I've developed over the years, is peakery, if that's the word. Throwing a huff, a hissy fit, call it what you will. Anyway, Natalie and the boys had left me home alone for what felt like most of the summer. It was actually about a week. And on their return, started planning their next jaunt to visit family and leave the faithful old retainer, me, once again looking after the place. Dogs, cats, livestock, B&B guests, everything. Well, I'd had enough. So, I huffed like Mariah Carey, if the requisite number of puppies aren't in her dressing room, and stalked off to my office. I emerged 30 minutes later, having booked one return ticket to New York and a hotel just off Times Square. I've got a holiday coming up too, and I slammed the confirmation paper down onto the table and looked around the room in victory. Then guilt hit me. Then the cost hit me. Then I spent the next four months trying to cancel the whole thing. It wasn't just the cost... I'd earned a present to myself, quite honestly, but it was the thought of going alone. In one respect, I mean without Natalie, I have romantic notions about New York, fed constantly by re-watching films like When Harry Met Sally, Annie Hall, Manhattan Murder Mystery, An Affair to Remember and so on. But Natalie isn't interested in New York, so she wouldn't have wanted to come anyway. No, what was bugging me was the thought of actually doing it alone, of being there on my own. I found the idea... Quite daunting. Now, I've spent over 20 years on the road as a comedian. I'm used to being alone. But the brutal truth is, I've got worse at it. Less able to cope with the solitary nature of touring. The travel part I can do easily. My spy film delusions cover that quite easily. It's the hotels. It's the downtime alone in your room. Over the past few years, I've found that much, much harder to cope with. There was a time I craved that kind of anonymous hotel solitude... And now I fear it. I fear being alone with myself for long periods. Going to New York for four days in early January, therefore, was a monumentally stupid idea, but the tickets and reservations were non-refundable. I was going. Ninety minutes into my wait in the US immigration queue, I was beginning to think I might not even get in. The doubts creep in in these situations. Have I applied for the correct visa? Am I in the right queue, etc.? The child in the buggy behind me was obviously suffering from the same doubts as me and threw up all over the floor. Her embarrassed parents, probably fearing separation by the authorities, apologised to one of the border officials who nodded solemnly and moved five metres to the right, to the other side of a pillar, in fact. I'm going over here, she drawled. That way I can't see it. Within another half an hour I was in front of an official from Immigration and Border Control who was leaning back in his cubicle so far I suspect he may have been sitting on a deck chair. What do you do for a living? He didn't even look up at me. I'm a writer, I said. Never say you're a comedian. They think you'll either be doing gigs and want to know why you haven't got a work permit or worse, ask you to tell them a joke. 
I had actually arranged a gig for my last night and proudly said so on social media before being warned by Wiserheads to take it down just in case the US authorities saw it and sent me home immediately. You ever been in New York before? He still didn't look up. No, I said, this is my first time. What are you going to do first? Probably go to the toilet. I've been queuing for two hours. Now he looked up. His lip moved slowly into a snarl while his whole face exhibited such utter disgust that that poor child might have thrown up on him, not the floor. He gave me my passport back. Next! I'd been advised to spend a little money and get a yellow cab into central Manhattan. I'd see the lights that way and get a feel for the place, see the steam rising out of the drains, for instance. Proper New York sights. It was good advice, too, and I felt immersed immediately. So much of it is familiar anyway from film and TV, but the recognition combined with the sheer scale of the place is just breathtaking, even at night. The road signs to places you know but don't know, the outline of buildings you've grown up with but never seen, the hundreds of iconic yellow cabs that feel as much a part of you as a London black cab. All my doubts about coming to New York went in that half-hour cab ride, I hadn't even got to my hotel yet and I was already regretting not coming earlier in my life. I was in New York City, baby, and this cab ride was like the perfect opening credits to my adventure. I hadn't felt so exhilarated in years. A combination of jet lag and time difference, but mostly childish excitement, kept me awake until four the next morning. I unpacked my suits, went for a walk along 8th Avenue, had a couple of beers and a bar across the street from my hotel, and bought a slice of pizza which I ate in my room watching Cagney and Lacey on YouTube. I knew exactly what I was going to do first. I was going to take an open-top bus tour and get my bearings. I checked the schedules. The first bus was at 8am, so I set my alarm for 7, feeling like a kid on Christmas Eve. An open-top bus tour might sound a little cheesy, and I may have looked an odd sight sitting on the top deck in the open air wearing a tweed Edwardian frock coat, my face frozen as the sub-zero wind iced my features into a Botox-like rictus grin. But it's the only way to get your bearings. I took the 8am downtown bus, saw all the sights, got off Midtown on the way back at the United Nations building, seen in North by Northwest, walked through Beekman, Annie Hall, to Fifth Avenue, breakfast at Tiffany's, into Saks department store, then out to the ice rink at the Rockefeller Center, sleepless in Seattle, and Radio City Music Hall, radio days. It was like a pilgrimage and I couldn't stop smiling. I was also too excited to eat, so I got on another bus tour, this time going uptown along Central Park West, through Harlem, and back down the other side of Central Park where I got off and wandered around the east side before spending a couple of hours in the legendary Argosy second-hand bookstore. And all the time I still couldn't stop grinning, I was like Frank Sinatra, Gene Kelly and Jules Munchen in On The Town. I'd done New York and all in a day. The only thing left to do was eat, and this is where the doubts returned. I'm not good at eating alone in public anyway. I have this absurd fear of embarrassment, a crippling loss of dignity. What if I spill something? What if I mistake the salt for sugar? What if I use the wrong cutlery? It's a nonsense, obviously. Nobody really cares. But on top of that... I had another fear. The new medication had left me with tsunami-like acid reflux, and it happened at every meal now. A totally disabling gasping for air, crippling pain, and my face turns bright red. Now how was I going to get around that? The answer was that I wasn't. I bought another slice of pizza and took it back to my room, trying not to feel deflated. I'd had one of the best days I can ever remember. New York, so far at least, 
had certainly not disappointed, though it felt slightly disheartening to be sloping back to my room to hide my eating troubles from the world. And anyway, I shouldn't have. Up until now, New York had been like a Disney fantasy, fulfilling every expectation I had of the place. So I should have gone out for a meal on my own anyway. I mean, what could be more New York than on my first night to start choking in a Broadway deli and be rescued by a native New Yorker performing the Heimlich manoeuvre? I missed a genuine tourist opportunity there. It's become a snooty European cliché to look down on Americans and mock their have-a-nice-day salutations. They don't mean it, is how we console ourselves with this alien level of geniality. Rarely does anyone mention the French equivalent bonjournée, which most certainly isn't meant a lot of the time, I'm talking between strangers here, and is a perfunctory conversation ender at best, or delivered almost as a snarling threat in the hands of a Parisian waiter. So do Americans mean you to have a nice day? Do they really? Well, if they don't, they sure as hell make you think they do. They all sound like they genuinely care. I'd been in New York 36 hours before it dawned on me that, hey, how are you, everyone's greeting of choice, was in fact a rhetorical question and not an invitation for me to either wang on about my aches and pains or even return the query. Hey, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? There'd then be an awkward pause before the sales assistant, beggar, cop, hooker, whoever, replied with a suspicious, What? I simply wasn't prepared for how friendly New York would be. I've spent a great deal of my life in London and Paris. Big cities aren't supposed to be like this. They're supposed to have attitude. But if New York has an attitude, it's this. It's, come on in, it says. Well, you have. I decided to spend most of the day exploring West Greenwich Village. The brownstone buildings in an off-kilter grid system, unlike the rest of Manhattan, are seductive, naturally cinematic, and have an old-school charm exactly like a village. I just wandered aimlessly, spending time in second-hand record stores on Bleecker Street or second-hand bookstores, being chatted to by the owners, who all seemed slightly bemused by this apparently shy Englishman, but dressed in brightly coloured frock coat and matching waistcoat. I was coerced into buying a Frank Sinatra CD, a Ray Charles DVD and a biography of Billy Wilder, none of which I really wanted and didn't mind at all. To be honest, I felt a bit numb. I've rarely been anywhere where I felt so at home so quickly and it was slightly disconcerting, like a sense of déjà vu. Of course, all the streets around the village felt familiar from countless films, almost ghostly as if it wasn't a real place at all but an actual film set. I kept expecting to bump into Woody Allen, bickering with whoever, saying classic Allen lines like Don't knock masturbation, it's sex with someone I love. Or Grace Kelly emerging from James Stewart's apartment. Or watching Sally drop Harry off at Washington Square. I sat and had a coffee to try and gather myself a bit. And it dawned on me why I felt so peaceful here. Very simply, because it was so peaceful here. There was so little noise. And I realised that that was something that I'd ignored almost since I'd arrived. That is just how quiet New York is. There were few sirens and people didn't even seem to shout at each other very much. I'd encountered a couple of street arguments, both of which had ended with the same Yeah, well, fuck you and your brother. But I'd just assumed that these were actors employed by the New York Tourist Authority in the same way that drama students are paid to wander around Hampton Court Palace wearing ruffs and saying things like forsooth and sirrah. 
And though the place was chocked with traffic, even that was quiet. Again, we kind of fed this line that the US is a gas-guzzling cloud of smog and noise. But as far as I can tell, New York, in terms of electric or hybrid vehicles, is well ahead of European cities. London is way noisier than New York, for instance, and Paris is way noisier than London. My natural instinct to mistrust came to the surface then. This wasn't what I was expecting, and so to my mind, something was up. New York was trying too hard. I really mean that. That's really what went through my head. Parts of New York, certainly in the more residential parts like Greenwich Village and the Upper East Side, even had quite a lot of dog poo on the sidewalks. This is like Nice in 1982, I thought. They really are trying to make this adopted Frenchman feel that much at home. I felt like a character in The Truman Show. I was being played and none of it was real. And that again is a symptom of the place for dreamers like me. I'd imagined myself into the fabric of the city. I was in a movie and this was my set. Something I wasn't going to shake off by imagining being perched next to Diane Keaton on a bench while I was overlooking Queensborough Bridge. Or that evening sitting at a bar opposite Madison Square Garden while the Rangers played a hockey game only a hundred metres away. I was literally living in a dream. The only non-New York thing I did in my entire stay was meet up with good friends, native New Yorkers even, who were also Francophiles, and who took me to the very un-New York Le Pain Quotidien for tea and croissants. I was more preoccupied on my last day, more focused. I'd arranged a gig at Gotham Comedy Club for that evening, and though I wasn't nervous as such, the adrenaline was starting to build early in the day, and it was difficult to relax. That I wasn't nervous was something of a surprise, though. I'm always nervous in a club I've never played before, always. But New York had gotten into me, as they say. The thing is, I just knew it would go well, especially as I was fully prepared to hype up my Englishness, properly bond this up, as it were, as I had done the last time I played the US at a festival in Boston. I knew it would work. In Boston, I'd played a big theatre gig with stars like Janine Garofalo and Eugene Merman. The second night, I was following a burlesque double act in a rough bar. The catcalls for the two very attractive burlesque dancers hadn't died down when I hit the stage. Would you mind, I said, giving it the full Roger Moore smirk as I took the microphone from the mic stand. I can probably take it from here, thank you very much. There was immediately, absolute, probably stunned silence. The gig at Gotham Comedy Club was everything I expected it to be. It was fun, rewarding, and the perfect end to my self-indulgent trip. And I wandered slowly back down 8th Avenue to my hotel. I had an early flight in the morning. And though the gig had been great, my thoughts went back to something that had happened earlier. I'd been for a wander around Central Park to run through my set list for the evening, and at one point stood at the Park Avenue end, overlooking the ice rink, looking up at the skyscrapers, confidently looking down at the city, like attentive parents. And then it started to snow. Once again, New York had pulled out all the stops for this tourist, and I just looked to the heavens, closed my eyes and smiled. I stayed like that for a few minutes as the flakes landed gently on my face. I was so happy, so content, so at home. Then I felt someone touch my arm, and I looked down and it was an old lady. She looked up to the sky as well, and then to me. It's beautiful, isn't it? She said, smiling, and I nodded. Just like your coat, she added, chuckling to herself before wobbling off. Oh man, what a place. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, if you'd like any information on comedy, gigs, books, um, the B&B, please go to my website on www.ianmore.info 
there'll be another episode out in a couple of weeks. This one was slightly late because I lost the original file, which is clever of me, and apologies for you probably heard the rain from the Loire Valley in the background. Thank <laughs> you.